Hey everyone, it's Arnold with Warm Welcome. Happy Wednesday. Today we have David Kuo from Little Fatty in Mar Vista here in California. It's a Taiwanese soul food restaurant, as he calls it. And uh, I live not too far away from the restaurant, actually. So I had a chance to try it a few times, a couple of times. And um, it, it really conjures up a lot of the restaurants that I've come to love in New York City, namely um, Eric's 886, Rich's Whole Foods, um, Triggs Windsun in Brooklyn. And I think that kind of like Taiwanese restaurant movement was underway in New York. And there's definitely a, a scene here, too, in, in, in L.A. And uh, I felt it important to highlight um, Taiwanese cooking or Taiwanese American cooking. Um, and David really fit the bill for me. Uh, he's been around in the industry for six years and he has just a wealth of knowledge and lessons learned that I think could be valuable for anyone tuning in that's an aspiring restaurateur or if you're just a regular foodie and have an interest in restaurants, uh, he provides some really great insight. So this is my conversation with David, who is a chef owner of Little Fatty in Mar Vista, California. And hope you enjoy this interview, and I'll circle back at the end. So I guess it goes back. Uh, my dad came here in 1969. Luckily enough, um, my parents are from Taizong, uh, Taiwan, and um, he luckily graduated college in Taipei, and then got a scholarship to UCLA. He came here first. Uh, my brother was born in 68. So he was like two years old when my dad left or something like that. And um, my mom had a good job working for the power company in, in Taipei. And so she sent, or, you know, she sent him money while he went to school. He, got, he had two jobs while he worked at school at UCLA, working at a gas station as a chemical engineer during the day and a gas station attendant at night. And he saved enough money to move my mom out. And then, um, yeah, that's how our family got here. And so uh, we grew up like a typical... Uh, I mean, I don't know what typical is, but yeah, we grew up like a traditional Taiwanese, you know, Asian American family where you're always taught to be a doctor, a lawyer, do well in school. And um, every, every meal was very interesting. My mom and grandma were great cooks and it was pretty traditional where there'd be like, you know, at least five, seven dishes on the table. And uh, with, I have three older brothers, so um, you had to eat fast because <laughs> to me, like they're all older. So they were like teenage boys and I was like eight or whatever. So I learned how to eat fast and to eat good food. And, you know, my mom grew some vegetables in the back. Um, luckily, we had a, you know, like a, um, we lived in the suburbs in West Covina. There was a backyard. And, you know, growing up, it was a little weird that, you know, trying to tell your friends what garlic chives are and why they stink and you know, trying to cut them and eat them. Um, but looking back, it was a great experience and it actually shaped the early years of my life about food. Um, food was always celebrated, whether it be a birthday New Year's, Chinese New Year's, of course, right? July 4th, wouldn't matter. Uh, of course, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was awesome because it was a little mix match of like, you know, traditional Taiwanese stuff and American stuff. So, I mean, growing up like that, you know, um, really, really uh, influenced my life and made food very really important in my life. Even like so in college, like I used to have bar, I mean, we had like, um, after, after the dorms, we had like a nice little four bedroom um, apartment complex with a drive with a driveway and like a front yard and we always have like parties we even did like back then it was like iron chef so we did like an iron chef competition one we, you know um, and believe it or not watching food network and emerald back in 1994 96 really did influence us 
I mean, that, that period of time, especially was when Food Network was really peaking, right? There was a yeah, I mean, the internet was out, but there weren't so, so much, um, as many resources as there's today. So that was like, you had to sit there and watch it and learn. And it was really educational and people make fun of them. And I mean, now they're like the old guard, but you know, looking back, it really was influential, like to nurture that, that uh, desire to learn more about cooking. Did you grow up cooking? And, and when did you start like cooking professionally? I was a latchkey kid. So like, you know, cause my brothers, I mean, the nearest, I mean, I had three older brothers. One was 12, seven and five years old, older than me. So my parents were pretty much over raising a kid by the time I was in high school. So, you know, like I learned how to cook things on my own uh, a little bit. And then my mom taught me some stuff. So, I mean, I didn't start working in restaurants till after college where I did property management. Uh, I was a property manager at a location and they had a restaurant. I moonlighted there after work. And then finally got serious about it and went to, you know, a cooking school out here locally, uh, La Cordon Blue One, worked for some places in LA, but decided to like really learn and, you know, back then, uh, go work at a three Michelin star restaurant, um, John George, um, the flagship one at Trump Tower and um, learned a lot, came back, saved some money, um, did more property management, flipped a house. It took like three, four years to save money. We found a first location in downtown Culver City, but the, I mean, uh, we'll talk about this later, but like trying to open a restaurant on your own is really crazy with no experience. And so I kind of went through a couple of years of uh, the school hard knocks. Uh, we lost some money, walked away from that location. And then uh, my wife let me pursue my dream, luckily. And uh, we found this location over here where we are now. And it's uh, in Mar Vista. It's in between, you know, Abikini, Venice Beach, Silicon Beach at Playa Vista, uh, Sawtell in Culver City. And there's, like you said, there's a bar, uh, farmer's market here every Sunday. Um, there's a lot of houses, a lot of population. I thought it was a culinary desert and I just wanted to build a, like a neighborhood spot. Yeah. It's a great story. And also honestly, a great concept and great neighborhood. When I was there on Sunday, just walking around the neighborhood and, uh, and the location is amazing. And, and there isn't, there aren't much like other restaurants that are, that are there. So, I mean, I, I, yeah. So when we first started, there was like a local, you know, like a little local, um, bar restaurant. And so since then, I think there's about like seven things that opened up and it's exciting that, you know, I mean, luckily we were one of the, you know, the, what, the second or third person here. Uh, but there's a big sense of community. Uh, the farmer's market definitely helps. Um, uh, right now there's something called nourish LA where they give, was he's a uh, Demetrius is a local business owner who has like four or five different businesses in the area, but he's really during this pandemic he started Nourish LA where every week since this thing started he's been giving out free food and I think they're up to like fifteen hundred people served or whatever. Um, yeah, so it's really impressive. This area is really great. We all know each other. Um, yeah, there's a couple of cool restaurants that opened up a new coffee shop, and we're just happy um, to see it thriving. I guess. And, uh, not thriving now during the pandemic, but you know, growing since we came in. Yeah. We know you and the people that are listening in probably know you for little fatty, but the thing is little fatty was actually a, a, a rebrand. It used to be a restaurant called status quo, kind of a playoff of your last name. It was my school of hard knocks. That's what I want to try to share. And I think we, we graduated that part, I think, uh, but we learned, we learned by a lot of pain and suffering and, and money. Um, it was, it was, you know, my first place and I thought I could, you know, cook all this kind of crazy food. But if you, if you look around, there's so many people doing new American, going to the farmer's market, using chef techniques. Um, it was really hard to stand out. Uh, the food was great. Obviously, uh, concept was a little muddled, muddled, 
but um, execution uh, could have been better. Uh, only on the side of um, you can't compete with people with money behind them or years of experience and you know a lot of connections. And so that's my learned. And like that's what I've been doing the last you know couple of years is uh, developing my network, developing you know relationships, and learning how to scale up. I think that's the problem. It's like you know you and I can cook a dish at someone's home and it'll be awesome and it could be in a restaurant, but like try opening a restaurant, trying to do it every day, trying to have days off, trying to raise kids, trying to have kids, right? Trying to do the paperwork behind that. It's, it's, it's so different. And I think that's what people don't see on the other side. Um, they just see people on Food Network or, you know, on Top Chef. And it's not like owning a restaurant is really gnarly, I think. You mentioned uh, before we hit record on this that, you know, you have two kids, four and six. And I realized actually those are the anniversaries of your restaurant, right? Um, I actually, status quo was like, my son was like a one and a something, but um, we always, I mean, we expanded three times. And so that's the story too. It was like, we, we got a CUP, we got a liquor license. We thought, you know, we're going to crush it with the liquor game. But, <laughs> but as you see, like, as you continue to grow, it's always a new level of challenges. But my son was born the day after we opened. And so it took us like three months to settle down and you know, I got to spend time with them. I mean, obviously not enough time. I mean, that's a whole another story. Um, but, you know, my wife said that I should go back and like do cook the food that I always wanted to cook. And that's a little fatty Chinese, Taiwanese, American kind of food uh, that we do now. And um, yeah, that's how we pivoted um, after my son was born. And that was, yeah, the Nam Rivers. How do you open a restaurant? And you have, you have no investors, right? It's just, it's just you. I say me and my wife and my wife is like, uh, has a day job. So she has a corporate job. She's the one who's really supporting us. Um, we, we look to expand our business. So we keep investing in our own business, whatever money you make. And right now, I mean, we're going to talk about all the things that we're trying to do right now during this time on our own. Yeah. It's a little crazy. Um, but we have a great staff and I'm really excited to see if we can actually accomplish these things in this next coming year during the pandemic and, whatever happens after that. So what were some of those lessons like you as a first time restaurant owner, right? In 2014, when you opened your restaurant, and I know that I know you, you've uh, you're here admitting to maybe some of the shortcomings, but what, what were some of the shortcomings and things that you wish you would have known looking back on it now? I think I'm a lot, I mean, because of the school of hard knocks, I'm a better student of our industry. I'm not, a, I mean, some people think, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I could teach people, but I'm always a student. I don't stop learning. I learned from everybody. I learned from a prep cook. I learned from other mentors. I learned from the dishwasher. I learned from my sous chefs, but I also share what I know. I learned a lot um, during those first formative years. Uh, I mean, for one, why would you build a place that was a crepe shop into a rotisserie shop? I mean, why would you just go buy a restaurant? It would have been cheaper, right? I just thought it was a cheap deal. And it's not always about the cheap deal. And you got to you gotta look at it holistically. And this goes back to what I learned is like, I looked at it from a chef standpoint. Oh, it's cheap. I can just put a hood in there and, and start selling rotisserie and people just come. Well, first of all, if it was busy, no one could sit there. It was like 15 seats, right? So yeah, you have a machine that can cook like 45 chickens, but you're not in an area that has high foot, like fast casual. I mean, that wasn't our concept. So now we always think things of holistically. Is this the right concept? I mean, we always start with concept, obviously. And so I think we're, getting, we're really good at that now. And uh, we'll talk about the new ones that we're doing. And then you think about real estate. And like, even today, I went to go look at real estate. I try to look at real estate like two, three times um, a week. We have several brokers and, you know, um, these are what I say is like, you have, to, you have to spend time developing your network. So if, the, uh, if a deal does come off market or a deal is below market, 
you'll get them instead of just opening LoopNet or asking, you know, like a landlord, hey, can I rent this space? And you know what's going on out there. I mean, also like land use. I mean, it's not just getting the real estate. It's like, um, I always had, uh, luckily the landlord here, Little Fatty, and we'll talk about that, uh, is really, really supportive. Um, so we went from 1,000 square feet to 2,000. But you have to change the use. It used to be an office space. And so we had to do a CUB change. That takes like a year and like $40,000 with, you know, whatever kind of fees and liquor license fees. That's not even liquor license. That's just a fee to, you know, apply for changing the use. Right? And so, oh, and then we got it done. I won a transfer lottery. And I, I didn't even do that right. I thought I had to go buy a, a, um, a liquor license from like Fresno. When, I could, and when it turns out, I could have just got one for like $9,000 instead of 40, even though I did save money off, you know, I, like an ABC license, like 90 back then. Now it's a little cheaper. Um, so things like that. So that, that wasted two years, right? And then, I mean, luckily we salvaged it. We opened Little Fatty. It got busy. And then the landlord, there was one more space left. And so I, I talked to the landlord and he agreed to let me have it. And this time we did it right. I mean, again, it took two years. I, and then I looked back as I was like, uh, why didn't I just do this like the first two years? I could have just got the two spaces, but we weren't in that position, obviously. So it's just like a good story. I mean, good story, not good story. I don't know. So you, I paid like 40,000 plus 40,000. So that's 80,000 just to change the use and wasted like, you know, like whatever, 30 months. Um, but it turned out for the best. And then we got an SBA loan. So now we're heavy into the SBA kind of like lending community. Uh, so we, the first thing I did was buy, um, we were lucky enough that um, the SBA lenders um, believed in us so much that we went out and bought a warehouse and we had to go as far as Gardena for price wise, but it's still close. It's like 15 minutes away. It's a 5,000 square foot um, warehouse with, uh, you know, some parking and stuff like that. But we built, um, which is about to complete now, it just took forever because of uh, COVID and city closures and whatnot. 5,000 square foot commissary kitchen. So once we got to the, I mean, had some success with Little Fatty, um, I kind of graduated the school of hard knocks and we had hire sous chefs and buy the right equipment too. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. We just remodeled for like the time Little Fatty to make it go faster. We'll talk about that. So yeah, I mean, then I started looking outwards because um, I just, didn't, I wanted to find something that's more sustainable where we can grow as a company and reward the people that work with us and stick with us. I mean, that's like the dream and like open more little things. But to do that, we just, I thought of a plan of building a central kitchen and then having satellites. Uh, I knew $15 minimum wage was coming three years ago. So I've just been working on a plan and like, it's one thing to say something that takes that long. It's still not even open, but like at least we made a plan and we're on, you know, we're 90% there. We should be open by January and I'll give you a tour and we can follow up and do all that stuff. Um, but yeah, that was the whole idea to centralize labor, uh, more efficient, um, better buying power, larger equipment, more storage. Um, yeah. So all the talented people, all the, all the people make all the stuff there. And then at our, you know, storefronts, you know, without minimizing quality. So like everything's braised there and cooled there. Right. And, I mean, we have like a, um, blast chiller, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, really state-of-the-art. I'll take you to see there's like 60 feet of cooking um, hood. Um, there's tilting, killet, or tilting skillets and kettles and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, centralize everything there and uh, have these storefronts. And so we're starting to implement that plan now. Uh, we're opening like a sandwich shop 
and meat market in Westchester. And um, the landlord here at Little Fatty had a market that was 5,000 square feet also. And uh, we're taking that over and everything takes time. It's like, we took it over like in July, but like, uh, you know, to design, submit plans. We just submitted plans in December, but we're really happy. Um, obviously we want to go faster, but because of the pandemic, it's actually okay that we're not going faster. And luckily the landlord is willing to work with us where we're not paying rent during this time until we, you know, until we're done. This sounds like the future, right? This idea of having a centralized kitchen or commissary kitchen, having satellite kitchens or storefronts, was this idea pre-COVID that you had? I mean, obviously it was. And I mean, COVID is accelerating everything in our industry. And we were going to specialty shows like, you know, like consumer packaged goods shows back in January because we were looking to launch these things. We're, oh, that's the other thing we're going to do out of there is make our own products, you know, try to get wholesale, that kind of stuff. Yeah, CPG. Yeah. And so, you know, we've been developing relationships where people want to carry it. I think there's a, a definitely a need outside of 99 Ranch and H Mart or, you know, like BBGo or Innovation or Ling Ling or PF um, Chang's. There's um, a next generation of ethnic food that's coming. I mean, you see it already, like some people are doing it. So, I mean, we saw this a long time ago and just like it, uh, things take time. And so luckily we were like already halfway through the hard part of just like figuring out a plan, figuring out what to do and actually implementing that plan. And we were like already halfway through because we bought the, you know, we bought the, uh, the warehouse. And so luckily we were already on that road only because um, the laws in California are really, really harsh and run a business in LA. I mean, just a simple fact of like my trash bill went from like 200 to like $700. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just one element. It's because they eliminated all competition. They divided up the city into like different companies and they just set rates. And it's like crazy. I was like, how does that make sense? And so like, we didn't want to open any more restaurants because of skilled labor. I mean, we're competing against Uber. I mean, at the very least, Uber, Amazon. I mean, Amazon can hire all my employees away in a second. I think that can speak for any industry, I guess. But you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, I can make as much money and I don't have to chop or burn myself. You know, like, I love cooking. I'll just do it at home. So like, you have to find different ways to inspire people and hire people now too. That's, that's another challenge. That's a whole other episode. Um, but we knew that was going to be a problem. So we were trying to figure out ways to give you restaurant quality food in different avenues, whether it be a convenience store market or in the, in the grocery store. Um, yeah. During this pandemic, <clears throat> you closed for a little bit in the beginning. And if I remember correctly, I think you reopened for, for takeout and delivery. And that's the only thing you've done since then, right? You haven't done any outdoor dining or anything like that? Yeah, only because, I mean, uh, we didn't have the opportunity. We have a little front space. Uh, we did all the calculations. We put some chairs out in front in the very beginning, like June, I think, or July, when they let us. But as soon as I saw numbers going up, I, for the safety of us and our own employees and, like, and for society, we didn't want to spread corona just so you can eat orange chicken with a cocktail on my patio. But I understand other people. They don't, some people don't have that option, and they have to do what they have to do to pay the bills. People got kids, people got jobs, I mean, you know, mortgages, people got rent, people got to eat, you know? So I understand that. So, but also, I mean, we have the opportunity because we signed the market to use the, to use the um, parking lot behind, which is like 5,000 square feet. We even looked into it. It was like, oh, I want a structure like, you know, like one of these fancy places in downtown because it's my friend's place. She told me how much it was. I was like, dude, I can't pay $8,000 a month just to rent this tent with lights and and you can't even buy a heater right now. We looked into it, but luckily I saw the numbers going up and I was just like, let's just wait. You know, like everything's going okay with takeout delivery. We actually invested um, 
streamlining our operations now. Like we got kitchen to place, kitchen display systems. You know, we used to operate on tickets. We're all used to, you know, hearing that nightmare sound of the ticket machine printing. But now it's just like all computer, so you can see your all days. We were like, you know, it was really stressful in the beginning in a good way. I think everyone goes through this because, you know, you're a restaurant, you do like a large number from like, you know, 12, you know, from lunch to 2 a.m. But now you're doing this number from five to eight, right? Or like, or, you know, you're doing like large covers, five to eight to go, and everyone wants their food right away. So luckily, um, Pam, our director of operations, really nailed our streamlining, our automation. And so now, like you order on our website, our food is done in eight minutes, and it's ready to be picked up by, you know, one of the third parties or yourself. It'll text you if you're picking up yourself, you know, that you're picking up, um, that your food's ready. And actually, we get complaints that the food comes out too fast. Like, I haven't left my house yet. It's going to be cold. Like, why didn't you tell me it's going to be ready? I had the opportunity to try it a few times, actually. And that is exactly my experience, which is like, I put in the order and then seven minutes later, it was ready. You know, I was just so impressed, more so from an operation standpoint, how you guys were able to streamline everything. So could we touch on that a little bit more about what it is that you did on the back end to make it so that it's so quick? Like the pickup time is ridiculous. I think I learned my lesson working Coachella. No joke. We used to sell like, I don't know, like two tons of orange chicken on a weekend at Coachella. I, I always, I, after learning that, I was like, you give me money, I'll give you food and it'll be like the best quality that you can get. All I want to do is you give me money, I'll give you food, money, food, money, money, food. All jokes aside, I think when I started status quo, is like, I'm, you're going to eat how I'm going to tell you how to eat. And when I, when I want to give it to you and what I slowly realized, it's not that way. You give people what they want to eat and give it to them in a new way, in the best way, in the most affordable way that they can eat it once or twice a week. Oh, it's orange chicken. I'm a chef. Orange chicken is not in my, uh, that's not not representative of me, but Hey, that's the number one order thing. Let's make the best version. Let's make it. How can we make it the best version in a box, fresh, best tasting in the city in like, you know, four or five minutes. But yes, I mean, so when this happened, you know, the first two months was really crazy. There was a lot of friction and, you know, like high volume, a lot of friction. So we spent money. We got like a new triple walk. We got a new, you know, like now we have four fryers, right? Now we have like two steamers. Now we have a garbage station. We got the kitchen display system. Now we're all automated. I mean, a lot of time was spent on the phone. Imagine just, you know, doing 80 orders an hour on the phone. You can't. You need like five people. Do you have PARs or caps like per 30 minutes or per hour where like the system itself is able to shut down maybe for a certain amount of time so you can catch up on orders or how does that work? I think people just uh, just turn off the apps, but now we've gone to a place where we streamlined it so much that um, we never have to ship apps. I mean, humbly speaking, yes. We divided up the menu. That's why we created a garbage station. And like, yeah, it's really balanced now. It used to be, you know, not so much. Does the menu you have now differ significantly from what you have pre-COVID because you had to think about I mean, a little bit. I mean, we always had orange chicken and walnut shrimp. I mean, that's not going anywhere, but we got rid of lettuce cups just because of the packing issue and like the lettuce wilt and all that stuff. Um, we kept the hits and we're going to put on some new stuff. I mean, right now we just hired some great staff, retraining. Um, there's a lot of um, moving parts to it. We're moving from our rented commissary to our home commissary next month. So we're trying to, you know, ramp up production and then get ready for the move. And then we're trying to add some new items once we move. So it's, it's not as easy as everyone sees on, you know, Instagram and, and LA Magazine. Yeah. In the beginning, when you do your first concept, do you think that a lot of it was pride and ego, maybe, in terms of like what you wanted to do and the concept and what you wanted to build? And then do you think over time you learned that maybe I need to think about 
more of a systematic approach as well, more of like a holistic approach or? I think I went through all those phases. And I think every young chef who gets the opportunity to open their own place goes through that. And I hope, I mean, feel free to reach out to me so you don't have to go to the school of hard knocks. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's, there's ways to bypass us now. So like now we can open concepts and it's more street, or streamlined and, you know, more systematic and it's a better concept overall and a better company, better management, uh, better approach. Yeah. I made you to make that decision in 2016 um, to completely redo and revision. Revenue is number one, just thinking about it. Like, Hey, this is, I mean, that takes a lot for someone to realize, Hey, this is not working. I'm going to, you know, but we're all fighters. We're all, you know, we all push, we all work harder. Well, it worked instead of 16 hours, I'll work 18 hours and maybe 20 hours or whatever, you know, to make it work. But, you know, at a certain point, you need to realize that it's not working and you only have so much time to fix it or it's time to walk away. And that's what I learned. And I think that's what helped us during the pandemic. It's like, well, you're known for this. Well, I, I can do other things to survive if it makes sense. Not like I can be, a, not like I can pivot and sell toilet paper and flour and yeast. That's not going to make sense. What are some of those pivots and projects that you're working on? Because I know you got your hands involved in, in a few things right now. Yeah. So, I mean, we're trying to do consumer packaged goods. Uh, we're working with a um, beyond type, um, impossible type um, protein replacement, the biggest one from Asia to uh, co-pack some stuff um, to come out with a line of products, that kind of things. We're working with ABC Sauce Heinz, they're owned by Heinz, trying to do some stuff with them. Um, working with Wang, that's a Korean distributor. Um, can't really say anything because it hasn't come out yet, but you know, we're doing all the homework right now. And that's what, that's what people don't see. Um, so it's going to take like, you know, six months. Um, there's a lot of government regular uh, regulations um, and stuff that we have to do on our end. Hopefully by, by mid summer, we're going to partner with Meiji Tofu to sell Mapo Tofu kits that whatever, wherever Meiji Tofu is, they're in like 200 stores. They're a Gardena company that makes, that uses 1960s, and non-GMO products to make an awesome tofu. So we're pairing our vegan mapo tofu with that, that you can buy it in a store. So that's like our you know, entryway. And if that works out well, I mean, we're, well, it'll show to other people that we can sell maybe some other Asian staples pre-made as a meal kit. Is, is the master plan, like the grand plan of, of all of this, right? Is it to have a centralized commissary kitchen for Little Fatty and then maybe open up a few storefronts of Little Fatty and then on the, in the meanwhile, as you build that brand, you have kind of a supporting CPG brand that sells different things that people can also purchase on their own time for two. Yeah. So what I want to share with your listeners is like, sometimes you talk to people, you're like, okay, cool. Go make the Facebook. You think you're, you know, you know, you think you could have done it. Go ahead. What we try to do is we lay out like a, you know, roadmap for like the next three years. And we actually do that with, you know, somewhat with projections and budgets, you know, those all change. Um, obviously, but these are all stepping stones. So like, Hey, we have a market. So now when we buy these, when we make these dumplings, we have to make it at 70,000 units at a time. Cause that's how the machine works. So how are you going to store 70,000 units? Let's sell some at our, you know, they're awesome. Let's sell them at our markets. Let's sell them at our convenience stores. Let's sell them at a uh, little fatty online. Let's deliver them to a neighborhood, that kind of stuff. And, and try to sell them wholesale. I'm just saying these are all stepping stones that support the main goal. Because so, you can't just like, oh, I'm going to take, I got a factory now. Let's take a, let's take a, let's take a Costco order for 1 million units. You know, that's not going to happen. You'll get alive. So why don't we just build our brand, 
and, you know, find outlets for them and, you know, serve people great food at an affordable price in the meantime and build up our brand until we find the right distributors and, you know, gain the right experience, that kind of thing. Are you focused kind of specifically on spreading more awareness about Taiwanese food or, or does that not really, it's not really applicable? Like, is that at the forefront of what you're trying to do? That's, that's a tough question for me because I only speak Taiwanese. My mom says we're Taiwanese. We've been there for 300 years and I really want to carry the flag, but that comes with a lot of uh, limitations. Like I try to sell stinky tofu. I try to sell oyster omelets where I am. And I swear if we sell stinky tofu, the whole dining room would clear out. Um, which is, I mean, I love it, but like you have to give people what they want and not to say we have to change, but just like, you know, like we're going to sell pork chop rice. We're going to sell, you know, oyster or vermicelli noodle soups and stuff like that, but just not right now. And, you know, and a lot of it has to do with uh, other people that were successful before me. I let them, you know, be like the go-to interview for like, Hey, uh, there's a Taiwanese thing going on. Like let's interview this person. And I was actually intimidated not to open my own place because of that person's, I mean, because of like Pine and Crane and Joy, and I don't want to seem like I'm copying them. And so we tried to, you know, so I think that's what held me back the first time. But then like, eventually, you know, I came to that decision, like, hey, let's just do our own version. This is the food that I like to eat. And I think other people might like it. Do you think though, that eventually when you, as, as your brand grows and grows and grows and more people get to know it and... Do you think that you would venture into doing something like those dishes that you just mentioned to me about like sticking tofu and things like that, where maybe once you have that cloud or that, or that influence, then maybe people. I think maybe we do it now because if people are eating in their homes, it's not in a dining room. So actually that's a good point. So look for that on our menu in the coming, coming weeks, months. I mean, I think people are kind of looking for those experiences right now too, right? Like they want more. I hate this word. I don't know how you feel about the word authenticity, but like it, it just gets thrown around so much. Um, but I think people are looking for those kind of dishes that maybe they, 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 they can find in some, some countries, like for example, in Taiwan. Right. Yeah. I think people want to, I mean, especially now it's like you go to these restaurants. I mean, that's the best thing about LA is you go to the, all these ethnic restaurants. It's like, you know, authentic. It's like being transported back there um, to wherever the, you know, the food is coming from. And, and yes, I do want to sell more of that food. And uh, I think that whole last five minutes is that conversation of how to approach it um, while, you know, moving forward. I think authenticity is really hard because in the beginning we got, I mean, we still get hammered to this day that it's not authentic. And I think, I think what I do is I take the, you know, what I know growing up and what I know as a chef and I, what I know eating out at other places and just try to make it better with, you know, like a different, a different ingredient, a different technique, a different, a different way of doing things. And just like our Mapo tofu is like, uh, we went through like five different renditions. And I just found that like the ones made in, in you know, the Pishang, Dobujang was just too salty, funky, and it just overpowered it. And I tried 17 different versions of Dobujang until we came across a Taiwanese brand. And it actually happened you know, like we use a lot of Taiwanese products um, and it's awesome. And so when people say it's not authentic, we're using like an obscure Taiwanese brand. Um, we're trying to import it ourselves, but it's so hard to get and um, that it, it really makes the difference um, in the dish, I think. And so when it, and we use like uh, organic red yeast, black bean, soy paste, which is like four times the cost of Kim Long. So when people say it's not authentic, it's because I think the taste is a little bit different and more nuanced and more complex. And like I told you in the beginning, 
it starts with something and then you, and then, and then it finishes with something else and it keeps you going back for bite for bite. And I think that's why people keep coming back to eat our food. Um, sometimes when you eat like bolognese, you get bored after the third bite without the food. And I think that's um, something hard to explain, hard to teach. But once you eat the food, you know, it's like a window to my soul. You want to eat it. You want to eat it. You know, I'm going to take care of you, whatever I put on the menu, that kind of thing. And trust. Yeah. Do you think about the end user in the sense that like, are you targeting a specific demographic? It's a lot of, it's funny because sometimes somebody, my team is like, why do you want to open this place over here? Or why are we even looking over here? Why don't we do demographics in this? I mean, all your, all your studies doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's in my opinion, because I mean, we, 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 we apply for things for lenders all the time. It's just like, dude, you, these projections do matter, but they don't. <laughs> They're just like estimates. The only thing I, I cook, the only reason why I wanted to open a restaurant is to eat good food. And like, I want to open a Vietnamese place because I want to eat good Vietnamese food. Or I want to open a Middle Eastern place because I want to, or I want to cook Middle Eastern tonight because I want to eat good Middle Eastern food. I think, um, I, I'm not like I'm the end user, but I always think about the end user, like, um, I think about both sides. Like, how do you make it? How do you source it? How do you scale it? How do you teach this to someone to make it consistently 20 times? And how does it sit in a box 20 minutes? And how does it get to that person's house? How do they eat it out of the box? You know, I, we think about that, all, I mean, from A to Z. And I think that's what cooking taught me on the line is like, you know, um, working at John George and working a busy shift. It's like, uh, you're like a conductor and conductor has like, you know, a lot of moving parts and, you know, um, and that's what, I mean, that's what restaurant business, that's what being a chef is. And that's what being a cook is. You have to think from A to Z, like how hot is this pan, right? How much oil do you have? How hot is the oil? How, how hot is, the, I mean, what temperature is the fish, is the fish skin dry? Did you salt it? Did you salt it too early? I mean, I just keep going. So like you have to take all those little, all those little details and just go all the way to the end. Yeah, it's exciting to see like this this new generation of Asian American like business owners, restaurateurs, and chefs, including yourself. And um, you know, for me, that's that's why I love the work that I do. Is just like it's really encouraging for for me to see as well that we are reclaiming you know this cuisine and culture and reintroducing it maybe in our own version or through our own lens. Just want to take this time to thank David for being on the show and. Again, I'm just a really big fan of the restaurant Little Fatty. I think it's a great addition to the neighborhood, especially Mar Vista. Um, if you live in LA, Mar Vista's farmer's markets happen on Sundays and they're amazing. And actually where it takes place um, is the same block that Little Fatty is located in. Um, so if you haven't tried it and you're in the neighborhood, I would definitely recommend it. The food is really, it comes out really fast, really hot, and really have no complaints about it. I think it really hits the spot. I think it, I think, David calling it Taiwanese soul food is exactly what it is. It's it's comfort food and it's not pretentious and there's it's not fussy at all. And I think it's perfect for the market. So um, again, David, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week on With One Welcome.